Hi, everybody. Welcome to another PR Masters podcast, where you get to hear the stories and wisdom of our industry's most successful leaders and legends. I'm Art Stevens, your host, and I'm pleased to report that today's guest is number 80 in our four-year series of the PR Masters podcast series. And today is truly an exception because we have with us, if the word legend is to be used, and this gentleman is truly among the top tier in legends in the PR industry. And he is John Iwata. And most of you will know that John spent a 35-year career at IBM where he had multiple leadership roles, including senior vice president, chief brand officer, and leader of the company's global marketing, communications, and citizenship organization. And during that time period, he reported to three IBM CEOs over two decades of significant transformation. And he was chairman of IBM's Corporate Strategy Committee. And according to Interbrand, IBM became the second most valuable brand in the world during John's tenure as CMO. At the present time, John is practice leader of the Yale program on stakeholder innovation and management at Yale School of Management, where he's an executive fellow and lecturer. And this program, which was established in 2022, was founded based on the work John and his collaborators led exploring stakeholder capitalism's impact on leadership. And he's also chairman of the board of trustees of Cooper Hewitt, Smithsonian Design Museum. He's the director of the Ladies Professional Golf Association. Why, that's an interesting opportunity. And chair of its nominating and governance committee, and he serves on the advisory board of Responsible Innovation Labs. I could go on and on, but John has a long career, both in professional public relations, communications, marketing, leadership, as well as the many volunteer activities that he's engaged in. So, John, thank you so very, very much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you with us, and our listeners are looking forward to having you share some of your wisdom with them following your long and continuing successful career. So, John, how are you today? Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Art. Thanks for having me uh, with you today. Thanks for that very kind introduction. I feel great. Um, uh, my voice is a little thick. I'm getting over a cold, nothing more than that. So for anyone who, who knows me, they say, that doesn't really sound like John. Well, that's, that's the reason <laughs> why. Well, John, you know, your name and reputation in the world of corporate communications and citizenship are known by practically everyone in the public relations profession, truly. And like so many others, I have followed your career with both envy and respect. In a word, you know, you represent the best in public relations practice, and you've demonstrated your leadership by spending 35 years at IBM, one of the world's most venerable corporations. And as I indicated, I am deeply honored to have you as a guest on our PR Masters podcast series. You have been deeply involved in many leadership roles, including global marketing, and IBM became the second most valuable brand in the world during your tenure as CMO. Can you tell us what you inherited when you started rising the ladder at IBM and how you changed IBM's branding? Well, um, I guess um, before I get into that brand uh, transformation that uh, you referenced there, I, I, I guess I'll just take a moment. Um, you mentioned I was with IBM for 35 years, and uh, that, that may be a little unusual, particularly for um, professionals working today to work for the same company 
for that such a long period of time. And that may be true, but I'll tell you one thing that made my career uh, even more unusual, even by IBM standards, is um, in the 35 years I was there, I spent five of my of the first five years were out in California, where I joined the company. I'm from California. Uh, obviously, a very young person coming right out of school. I worked in a research laboratory as basically a science writer for for those first five years. Had a great time. But IBM being based in New York, uh, you know, a very good thing. They always like to move people around to develop them, and they wanted me to move to New York for development. And I, my wife and I accepted a two-year temporary assignment to corporate headquarters in New York. Um, uh, and we ended up, I ended up staying there for, uh, for 30 years, and that was the end of my career. So when I, I mentioned that because uh, I spent you know, 30 years in corporate headquarters uh, during a time of great change, and I learned a lot during that period. So the context for my career has been one of continuous uh, change, challenge, uh, a lot of a lot of setbacks, a lot of reinvention. When I joined IBM in the late '80s or in the mid '80s, uh, this may be hard for some of your your listeners to uh, believe. Frankly, we were the most admired company in the world. So whatever company occupies that place in your mind today, you know Apple or. Uh, Microsoft or Amazon, you, you pick it. Uh, we were that company uh, when I joined. It was quite an honor, and everything we did seemed to be the, the right way to do it. Um, but when I got to corporate headquarters in the early 90s, shortly after I arrived, the company just fell off a cliff, and it, it was a stunning collapse as a business. And uh, again, some of your, your listeners may not recall that. Some will. It was huge news, and it was devastating to the stock, uh, to employees. Uh, it was a it was a true crisis, and I you know I, I lived through that, worked through that, and the company turned itself around under a series of uh, tremendous leaders who I got to work with ultimately for. Um, now, if I if I go to your question specifically in in two thousand and two thousand and eight, um, my CEO at the time, Sam Palmasano. Uh, integrated uh, marketing with corporate communi- with communications and um, and the corporate citizenship function. So we put three organizations together. I had been the chief communications officer, um, and I suddenly found myself in uh, in the leadership of of a very large integrated organization in 2008. And um, the state of the brand there was not uh, not too bad. Uh, certainly not like it was during the collapse in the early 90s. It had recovered a lot. But the biggest brand challenge we had um, was uh, not brand recognition. People didn't, like, suddenly forget IBM. I think the more worrying challenge for the brand is that it had no relevance. It had it had little relevance to people because we had changed so much, gotten in and out of businesses, and, and most Visibly, we had sold the personal computer business, the PC and ThinkPad business, to Lenovo. And uh, when we did that, we basically became a a fully B2B company, and we we no longer had, quote, any consumer business or end-user business. 
And from a brand perspective, the withdrawal, the withdrawal from a end user business to becoming a B2B player was, you know, pretty significant challenge. And um, that set the stage for, uh, you know, the work that, m- you know, many of my colleagues and I uh, took on. Wow. Thank you for that. Uh, that's actually very revealing. And, you know, I'm, I'm old enough, you know, in line with what you just uh, described, I'm old enough to remember the early branding of uh, IBM, its branding and reputation with male employees required to wear the IBM uniform to work and so on, a certain color shirt and so on. Were you there at the time? And, and if so, did you play a role in changing that reputation about IBM? <laughs> uh, well, y- yes and no. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, I, I happened to jo- when I joined IBM in the 80s, it still had that reputation and that practice of, you know, very formal business attire. However, because I joined a research laboratory out in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, they, they did not wear, uh, you know, white shirts and red ties and suits. They dressed like, you know, scientists and, and technologists, although I must say that I, I came to work in a, in a tie back then. Certainly <laughs> when, I went to corp- when I went to corporate headquarters in New York, uh, you absolutely, you know, it, it was, uh, as, you, as you would expect, it was shiny shoes and conservative uh, suits, dark suits, uh, principally white shirts. Uh, very sober dress, and that stemmed from the um, founder of the company, Thomas Watson Sr., uh, in uh, in the earliest part of the 20th century. And it wasn't because he said, you know, you got to wear this uniform. He had a principle that you should dress like your customer. And you know, back then and for decades, um, the customer uh, being you know executives for the most part. In, in businesses like banks and airlines and government departments and insurance companies, they dressed in, you know, suits and ties and fairly conservative. So Watson said we show, should show respect and dress like our customers. And it kind of perpetuated. But like many things that went wrong at IBM, that got frozen in time, you know, like a mosquito in amber. And no matter how much – you know, no matter how much our customers changed or or business changed, you know, we 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 sort of continued to march along in our in our in our clothes. That all changed under Lou Gerstner, who came into IBM um, as an outsider, which was quite shocking to a culture that had only promoted from within at every level. So, so to have um, the CEO at the time, John Akers, and he was the CEO when I came to headquarters, uh, depart under very uh, unfortunate circumstances. The board announced a search. We were leaderless for months. That was very weird and awkward and scary. And then in comes Lou Gerstner in, in the April of 1993, and um, he started to do his, uh, his thing. And, and uh, it didn't happen right away, but as part of the transformation of the company, you know, he said, no, there is no dress code. We have a principle. We don't have rules. We have a principle, and the principle is dress appropriate to your job. And he kind of stopped there, and he said, listen, you know, if you call on call on customers and your customers wear suits and ties, you know, uh, you should do the same. If you work in a laboratory, uh, 
you don't necessarily have to do that. So we all <laughs> – so the word went, <laughs> went out. Gerstner has dropped the dress code. And, you know, you went, you went from one side of, you know, white shirts and so forth to the other side, which is, oh, we all get to dress down. And that's not what he meant. And then I was, uh, I don't know, in my 30s, then I forget. But, yeah, I, you know, I, shed, I immediately shed my, my suit and tie at corporate headquarters. And, um, and I went down to have a meeting with him. And uh, I'd been doing that for a bit. And uh, as I was walking down this long hallway toward his office, he was standing out there with his um, administrative assistants, and I was wearing, I don't know, khaki pants and a red, and a, not a red, but a blue blazer and a, and a, you know, button dress shirt, but no tie. Perfectly, you know, fine, I thought. And Lou said, you know, quite loud, uh, so I could hear it, Debbie, who is that coming down our way? Is that a plumber? <laughs> and, and, uh, and from that point forward, I was back in my, you know, suit and tie. And the point here was that um, Gerstner had, you know, led the business based on principles, not rules. And the principle applied to corporate headquarters. You know, the CEO dressed in a suit and tie. And if you were working around the CEO, he expects you to do the same. And I learned that lesson. Oh, wow, that is interesting. So, how did it feel to be a plumber back in the day? <laughs> <laughs> I learned many lessons under under Gerstner, and still and still do. <laughs> so, John, here here's a question that I ask all my guests. You know, uh, we all got into the public relations profession uh, either by choice or by accident. You know, and many many of our previous guests on the podcast series. Uh, did get into our profession by accident. Just circumstance played a role. And I just want to ask you the same question. Did you choose public relations as a career, or did you get into it by accident? For example, what was your major in college and postgraduate school, and how did that lead to where you went to? Um, it, it, yes and no. I mean, I... I um... Well, you know, I, I wanted to uh, study journalism with an intent to, I guess, become a reporter or an editor and so forth. And uh, I, I had my sights on Berkeley, and I was actually accepted. Uh, and then I was not accepted because they decided to <laughs> close their undergraduate school of journalism, and they wanted to accept me as a sociology major. I should have done that, but I was hmm. in a, you know, I thought very narrowly, and so I, I went to. San Jose State, my, where I'm, my hometown is San Jose, California, and went into the journalism uh, program there. Um, and as an elective class, I took a class called public relations, which I'd never heard of. Um, but I kind of <laughs> liked the class description, and you had to take an elective and lots of electives. So I did. And the professor, Dennis Wilcox, uh, ran the class based on case studies. And one case study was the Johnson & Johnson Tylenol crisis. Ah, uh, yes. And how it was managed by Jim Burke and Larry Foster and so forth. And I was deeply impressed by that. I, I thought that PR was, you know, what unfortunately many people, some people think PR is. 
I did not realize that it was so, um, you know, grounded in principles and judgment and decisions and, you know, kind of a high stakes game. And, um, you know, one thing led to another, and I changed my major. I changed it. Uh, San Jose State, um, I think, still offers uh, a bachelor's in public relations, and I switched from uh, uh, you know, reporting and editing to public relations, and I actually have a degree in that. Um, and uh, I started to do internships with I, with IBM uh, and in their corporate in their communications department out out in San Jose and did a couple of those. And just before I graduated, I was offered a full-time position um, by IBM. So I didn't set out, you know, I don't, I don't know if a 14 year old or 18 year old thinks about going into <laughs> PR unless your, unless yeah. your father is uh, named Edelman or something. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I didn't, but I, but I did, I would, I did get, I did start off going in, you know, uh, aiming at an adjacent uh, profession, you know, journalism. Yeah. So it really wasn't purely accidental, you know, because obviously Correct. you began to study public relations in college and really that took it from there into the career that you achieved, you know, at, at IBM. So, and it also sounds like IBM was uh, pretty much the only company you ever worked for. <laughs> well, I, um, I, I washed dishes in a restaurant uh, when I was, uh, you know, a teenager, and I uh, I worked at Bank of America as a clerk for a, yeah. for a, for a summer, I think. But no, it's it's pretty much been um, IBM. Well, we're grateful that you didn't stick with uh, washing dishes as a career. Okay, <laughs> I think I think you you led a much more productive career than being uh, in the back room of a restaurant. <laughs> I did. I did. So, I did learn from that. I did learn from that. <laughs> I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. Hope, hopefully, you didn't have to wash dishes at IBM. I, I, it sounds like you didn't. But <laughs> yeah. So, John, here's a, a question that that will address your level of modesty. Okay. <laughs> of all the contributions that you made to IBM, and there were many, obviously, in your you know really uh, stellar career. What do you consider your most important and rewarding contribution to the company? Uh, I, I think there were two that were examples of the same thing um, uh, in support of two of my CEOs. Um, and what they, what they both were versions of um, was developing a point of view that IBM could project into the world, um, a point of view about um, technology, you know, based on our business, which is technology and how it's applied principally in businesses, but also its impact on society and how, and how things work in the world. That's what we've done for over a hundred years. And, um, the first opportunity to do that was under Gerstner. He had turned the company around, and as he put it, we're you know we're 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 not dead, we're just irrelevant, <laughs> and uh, that's not that mm-hmm. that won't do. You know we have to be a leader, and no one really looks at us as a leader anymore. And the leader has to have has to lead, has to take its customers and governments and other stakeholders somewhere, and we need that. Um, 
and a lot of different parts of headquarters tried to make the CEO happy by developing strategies and visions and all kinds of stuff. And uh, this is this is when there was a, you know there was marketing was not part of communications. And anyway, he was going to give a big speech, his first big big technology industry speech after the company had again recovered. So everyone was anxious to to hear Gerstner's uh, vision thing. And it kind of fell to me to take a crack at it. And I'll remember the meeting where he said, I want this speech to lay out our view about technology and its impact on business society. I want it to be hard hitting. I want it to be not about IBM at all. I want it to be about bigger thoughts, about trends and, and, uh, in, uh, in, uh, you know, the world and technology and so forth. And I kept waiting for him to tell me what he thought that was. And he, <laughs> and, uh, he didn't. And uh, I was taking all these notes on a steno pad or something, legal pad, and um, I walked out of there with my colleague, and I said, he told us, told me what he wanted the speech to accomplish, but he didn't tell me what the content is. And he kind of smiled and said, no, that's your job. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And he said, you're about <laughs> to find out the difference. You're about to find out the difference between being a writer and being an author. And, um, you know, that was a big, heavy lift. Uh, and, uh, but in the end there, you know, when it, it, that, that was um, something called e-business, and that was the dawn of the Internet in 1995. And IBM uh, and Lou was very supportive, and he, you know, he had to argue with Lou a little bit to sort of persuade, not persuade him, but argue the logic. You know, is, is this really it? He was skeptical at first, I would say, that, you know, the Internet, that thing. But um, <laughs> it sounds funny today, but the core of the message, the core of the point of view is that the Internet is going to be used for business. <laughs> it's going to be a serious uh, networked environment where you can actually conduct, you know, transactions and so forth. I know that sounds so obvious here. But it was it was um, it was successful for IBM at a time when we we had been written off, I think, as among you know like a lot of has been technology companies, and it did a lot for us. The second version of the same thing was under Sam Palmasano. I had now become uh, head of marketing, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, the company was certainly doing well financially and so forth, but we, we were very confusing to people because we had gotten out of, I said, as I said, PCs, but a lot of other businesses. We had gotten ourselves into a lot of things that people, frankly, didn't understand. We had acquired PricewaterhouseCoopers Consulting and dozens and dozens of little software companies. And um, it was kind of the same ask, which is, what is our point of view and that turned into something called Smarter Planet, which uh, we announced in 2008. And uh, to this day, I think you still hear echoes of, of it in Smarter Cities and Smarter Healthcare and Smart Energy Grids. And, you know, I think that uh, I would have to say that those were my things that I look back upon as feeling like they not only helped the IBM company, but they also helped uh, a lot of other people make sense of things around them that were beginning to happen. And we gave it a context. We gave them a way of viewing it. We gave them a kind of vocabulary. 
of understanding these things. And, you know, that's uh, not easy to do, um, but it's very satisfying when it, when you get it more right than wrong. John, during all the years that you were at uh, IPM, did you ever think of leaving? Were you ever enticed by another possible situation that came your way? Um, one time, uh, only one time. And, 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 um, and, uh, I guess I can say, well, I shouldn't say, but, um, it actually has to do with the, with the, with the thing I mentioned earlier, which is the IBM brand, not, not being, uh, relevant to people, although perhaps well known. And, um, uh, I, at the time we, our three children were quite young, you know, or, in grade school, probably maybe one of them uh, was in middle school, but they were young and he had no idea what dad did except, you know, work all the time. And, um, mm-hmm. I, I turned down, you know, some nice um, offers. It was very really flattering, of course, to get a call from anybody, but, uh, I got a call from a recruiter who was after me for, let's just say a very large, uh, family entertainment company with beloved characters <laughs> and and destinations uh-huh. <laughs> that that, ch- that children cherish and love and dream about. And the only reason I thought three, that three guesses, right? Three guesses. <laughs> yeah, right. And the only reason, really, the only reason I thought about you know maybe maybe having a conversation or two was because of my kids. And they might say, you actually work for a really cool company. But uh, no, I, 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 knowing that I wasn't going to be serious about it, I, I didn't really pursue it. I thought about, yeah. I, I thought I was going to be fired a couple of times, but uh, oh. not, not in terms of uh, leaving. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's a question I would never have asked you. <laughs> the, the perilous times. <laughs> But, uh, John, tell us about what you're currently doing on the Yale program on stakeholder innovation. How did that come about? Did you decide to retire first from IBM, or did this come along and you just transitioned over to it? Yeah, no one quite believes me on on this. You know, when I I decided to retire, uh, you know, I, I, I... I was very fortunate to to be able to retire at a, I guess, a fairly young age. I was 55, and that milestone was quite important to my family and to me. And um, and I wanted to stick to my commitment. You know, 35 years is enough. And um, and when you work for CEOs, for those of you who do or have, you'll understand. And I put it this way: you know, working for a CEO is putting putting city miles on the car, not highway miles, if you understand the reference. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. so it's, it was, it was, it was plenty. It was a wonderful, wonderful career. And um, so I, I had no intentions of doing anything um, except stopping. And I had no plans. I had no ideas, frankly, I just wanted to stop. And then I figured, you know, after a period of time, I may decide to continue not doing anything or whatever. But but one of the first calls I got when I announced that I was going to retire in a few months uh, was from Ravi Dar, professor of marketing at Yale School of Management. I'd gotten to know Ravi because he had kindly invited me up when I was uh, head of marketing at IBM 
to come speak at his marketing class, you know, like once a year. So I'd probably done it three times. That was it. And um, I'd gotten to know Ravi, but not particularly well, but, but it was very collegial and, you know, nice for me to go up there and all that kind of stuff. And he reached out and said, I don't know what you're planning to do in your uh, retirement, but would you consider spending time at School of Management? And I said, well, sure. Like, what do you have in mind? And uh, it, that led to uh, becoming a fellow uh, at the School of Management, which was really very open-ended and super flexible, uh, just, you know, being available to give lectures, uh, doing roundtables with students and faculty and dropping in on classes. So it was very uh you know, enjoyable for me. Well, after about a year of that, he asked, you know, do you, do you like this? Was it going well? I said, I love it. And he said, do you want to do anything more than that? And I said, I would love to take on a little project because it was 2019 or, uh, yeah, 2019. And the business roundtable had gotten a lot of press for revising the uh, purpose of a corporation statement from from what it was, which was to, you know, maximize value for shareholders, uh, you know, the Milton Friedman uh, uh, doctrine, so-called, to creating value for stakeholders, employees and customers and shareholders and society and so forth. And I wanted to, not a novel concept, but I, but having worked at corporate headquarters and being on executive committee for many years to, under various CEOs, I, I said I'd like to talk to CEOs about the how of that, not the why of it, but the how. Because I know it's hard, you know, when you're when you're having to deliver 90-day results, the temptation to make trade-offs and so forth. I, I, I just went, so I got a lot of support to do that. And, I, and then the pandemic hit, and one one of the very few benefits, uh, I guess, of the pandemic was that busy CEOs like the rest of us were at home, and they were available to be interviewed. And um, they started to introduce me to more of them. And um, I started off interviewing, you know, a couple of dozen and became 40-something, 60-something, and on and on. And uh, terrific, terrific leaders. And they had a lot to say. And a pattern came out of that about what they perceived to be gaps in skills, in, in leadership skills, uh, um, in tools and methods and approaches that they believed would help leaders uh, to, um, you know, to do this, to do this well, just to create value for, for multiple stakeholders. And, mm-hmm. um, and I have to credit um, Sam Palmisano and Lou Gerstner and, and Ken Chenault of uh, American Express and others to say, what are you going to do with this? these learnings and and my answer was I don't know (laughs) I've just been I've been interviewing a lot of CEOs and have been learning a lot my colleagues at Yale have been too and uh, they basically uh, said um, uh, why don't you form an institute or a center or whatever they call them at Yale and uh, scale scale this work so it could actually you know, help MBA students and also executives uh, through tr- through training and case studies and and research, and that's what happened. Um, you know, we 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 got uh, they're they're all on the board. Uh, they've all been very supportive in more ways than one. But it's given us the resources to 
to do our work. So we, that's what we do. So I'm the practice leader of this program at Yale. Uh, I've got two wonderful faculty co-leaders, Robbie Dar and Ted Snyder, former dean. And uh, we're developing case studies. We're putting them. Uh, we're putting learnings into the curriculum. We're making all of this available at no cost to, to corporations and other academic institutions. Beginning to do some research. So it's it's been very it's been very um, interesting, and hopefully it will it will help it will help uh, businesses make good on their intent to uh, to to create value for for the people who matter to their success. Well, that's that's a marvelous program, really. John, I just have a few more questions for you, and I'm grateful for the time you're taking for me and our listeners and for uh, Compro. But what you're saying is so so intriguing, you know, that I can ask you a dozen more questions, but I'll take just a few more minutes of your time. Uh, and one has to do with a, a look at our profession as a whole. What's your view of uh, where public relations is currently as a profession and an industry and as an add-on to that, what's what should it be doing that it isn't, and vice versa? Um, it's, my my view of it is um, is I'm I'm optimistic about it um, because uh, you know long before I started interviewing the CEOs about stakeholder capitalism, um, because of the Page Society, uh, which is the professional association of of chief communications officers, uh, which I was privileged to be a part of, still am, but I was a, on the board and all this stuff. You got a really good sense of the need uh, in the C-suite, the CEO agenda. And um, my sense is that um, C- CEOs uh, are advantaged uh, a lot because as you come up through the ranks in communications, you you learn it becomes like uh, breathing it becomes uh instinctive you learn to think the way the ceo thinks about multiple audiences or stakeholders um and a lot of ceos don't realize that that is the core of their job until they become ceo satan Nadella of microsoft famously said in an interview after he had been CEO for a few years, he had no idea how much time and energy it takes to think about shareholders and employees and customers and governments and retirees and so forth. And and communications uh, leaders, professionals, you know, they think that way, right? We're trained. So as I've learned, there's no such thing as good news or bad news. Even what you think is good news can be perceived by some stakeholders as bad news. I'll give you an example. Oh, good news. We are acquiring a terrific uh, company today. Well, why isn't that good news for everybody? Well, how much are you, you know, investor? How much are you paying for that? <laughs> are you overpaying? Um, how about um, employees? Wait a minute. You just spent a billion dollars buying that technology company. You could have given us $200 million in R&D, and we could have done it. Um, why, why didn't you have confidence in our ability to do it? <laughs> um, and, and so it goes. And you just learn, mm. even something that you think is terrible news, like we're announcing a layoff today, terrible news. Well, you know, for some, for some people in, the, in financial markets, they say, why didn't you lay more people off, you know, <laughs> um, and, mm. and, help, mm. and help with margins? 
so I, I think the, the opportunity has always been the case that if we apply this in the C-suite, um, we, we have a lot of, a lot of uh, impact to make. Uh, the downside of that, or not the downside, but the reality of that is some some colleagues uh, who come up through the ranks, as I say, um, maybe they, maybe they're a former reporter and they came up through media relations, and they still see the world through the lens of of you know journalism and media, and they don't have the full 360 view or they come up to internal communications and they think everything is about employees and, and the workforce. So I think some still, you know, struggle with that comfort zone. Um, but if you can, and many do, many do, uh, they bring that whole, you know, point of view, that worldview to the, to the conversation, highly valued by CEOs. I think in an era of technology, uh, it started with digital so-called digital, and now it's going to a new whole new realm with AI. Um, the profession um, is at a crossroads. Um, this is another one of those moments uh, where uh, it has a chance to embrace completely new capabilities, reinvent itself, add more value to their to their organizations, um, and uh, and so forth. Um, or miss it, you know, <laughs> miss it, and and, uh, and other others in the organization, other functions, will will lead, and that would I think be a really missed opportunity for uh, for communications leaders. And they're all I, I'm pretty optimistic though that I don't think they're going to miss this one, um, but they have to be willing to get out of that comfort zone and embrace you know entirely new ways of thinking and and working. Well, John Iwata, certainly from your vantage point in the catbird seat and a glorious career at IBM and the important work you're doing now for Yale, your insights have been tremendous. And I, on behalf of our many listeners, uh, I thank you for joining us today. And uh, you've given us a great deal to think about and also some great insights from your catbird seat, as I say, uh, on the public relations industry and where it's going. And I'm glad to hear that you find that it's uh, positive, productive, and there's more in store for us. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Art. Thank you. Thank you. And I really enjoyed the, uh, this conversation. Hope, hopefully it helps uh, some of our friends. It does. And that's it for today, folks. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Faye Shapiro, publisher and editor-in-chief of Compro, for your support and sponsorship of these podcasts, which are now in their fourth year. This is Art Stevens, your host signing off. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, be well.